and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Tim Urban is a writer. He is the creative force behind the extremely popular Wait But Why blog and their newsletter, which has over 600,000 subscribers. He has a book coming out in February, and he's authored dozens of viral articles on subjects ranging from why we procrastinate, which is what we talk a lot about in today's conversation. And procrastination is really at the core of Tim's struggles, but also the processes and systems that have allowed him to be successful. And so he, he writes about things in psychology and politics, and he even writes about why we haven't encountered alien life forms. So to say Tim has range is probably an understatement. He doesn't consider himself to be an expert or a guru at one thing, but he lets his curiosity wander and it takes him to all kinds of different places where he researches and writes really in long form articles. We can call them blogs, but they are well thought out articles. And his email list has people like Elon Musk as subscribers and Ted Curator Chris Anderson and Twitter co-founder Evan Williams. So people way smarter than myself and wiser than myself are reading his content, but I too am a subscriber to his articles, to his blogs, to his newsletter. Um, Tim also is someone who is a speaker. He's got an incredible TED Talk that I highly recommend you check out. And he's also known for drawing quirky graphics and stick figures. And we talk about what it's like for him to be an artist uh, as well. So this conversation focuses mainly on procrastination. If you are someone who struggles with that, as many of us do, I know you're going to enjoy it. So here is Tim Urban. Tim, where I thought we would start is on procrastination. That seems to be a theme that you enjoy talking about. Um, so when did you first become interested in procrastination and, and start thinking deeply about, about that? Um, 
uh, I'm not sure I was ever interested necessarily in it as much as I was um, suffering from it uh, for uh, basically since I was this is since the first day in like fourth grade when I got assigned homework I was like oh, oh I hate this I hate doing work uh, and instead of and, and, I, and I started reacting to hating it by not doing it. And then I would eventually realize I was going to get in trouble for not doing it. And so I would panic uh, at the last second to do it and then hand it in. Um, and this became a theme where I would, um, I would uh, have a huge resistance against doing things that I was supposed to do uh, until there was some deadlines and panic uh, and then I would, um, and then I would do it. And, uh, and so when I became a writer many years later, which is an insane thing for me to have done, given that it's a terrible job for a procrastinator. Um, you know, I like to explore things that, um, you know, either that interest me or sometimes just, just, um, uh, frame things. I think we all experience, uh, in a way that maybe can help clarify what's going on. And so, some topics I, I like to do a lot of research on. Um, this one, I, I, it, it wasn't necessarily like research on why it happens and how it can be fixed. And what's, it was more like, uh, let me just explain what goes on in, internally when this has happened. It's not laziness necessarily. It's not um, me saying, um, oh, I, I, I'm smarter than everyone. I don't have to pace myself. I can do this stuff at the last second. It was never that. I always wanted to pace myself. I was always mad at myself for the way I would do stuff and, and, and regretful. Um, it was this weird battle in my head. And so I said, who's, who are the characters in this battle? What's going on? And I said, well, there's definitely, I know one character is this rational decision maker, this, this grown up in my head that says that maps out the plan and says, this is clearly what we should do based on experience, based on the, the, the situation at hand. And uh, this is obviously the right plan. Not because it's the grown-up plan, but just because it's it's the way to do it well and also be done and not stressed and not miserable and be able to join myself later. So then who's this other character in there that is clearly more powerful, that is suddenly that, that that is in the you know in the moment when it's actually time to execute that pacing myself plan, grabs the wheel in my head and I do something else. And then so I I, I labeled this the instant gratification monkey. Um, and to me, it is like a monkey. It's like the part of our brain that is very ancient and very, uh, you know, um, uh, it's not very, it's not necessarily conscious. It can't see the, um, the, the big, bigger picture. And it's just like the rational decision maker. It's just trying to, to make, you know, make, make me happy to make itself happy to do the right thing. Um, but it, the the without being able to see the big picture you don't realize that the best way to for you know maximum happiness this week is to do this stuff now and be miserable temporarily and then you know much better later it can't see that whole thing all it can see is this minute or this hour and so if you can only look at this minute then it doesn't then all it can say is well how do i maximize happiness in this minute and that is that uh well work is hard and doing other stuff is easier so it's just gonna you know do, do other stuff. It's like, it's like a cold day and you get out of the shower and it's like, Ooh, it's like you turn the shower off and it's suddenly so cold. That monkey just would just turn back the shower on. There we go. It's problem solved. Right. But the, the part of your brain that can see the big picture says, well, we're not going to stand in the shower all day. Like we have to get on with this. This is going to be five minutes of kind of coldness and then we'll dry off, get clothes on. It'll be fine. The monkey can't, see there so the monkey would just turn the shower back on right and so now i don't have a, i don't sit in the shower all day so this isn't that's an area of my life where um the monkey has been tamed and the rational decision maker can, you know makes the right choice when it comes to sitting down and doing my work that balance of power is reversed and so i wrote about this and and, and then you know the, the 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 but i realized that okay but that that's not the whole story because if it's just those two characters then how do I ever get anything done? What, why do you know? Again, why, why why don't I always? Why am I not in the metaphorical shower twenty four seven? And then I realized, okay, right, yeah, it's because there would be a deadline, and it's not that it would, the deadline is not a character. It's that I would panic about missing the deadline. It would be this fear 
So I was like, okay, there's a third character. It's the panic monster. And it's like the panic monster is like waiting in the wings, waiting in the wings and not actually there. I'm, I'm, I might feel dread and anxiety and a bunch of these feelings, but that's not enough to beat this instant gratification monkey. Uh, it's only when it's like, oh my God, like this is due in two hours and I'm going to screw up my whole like year, you know, my whole grade. If I don't, boom, now the panic monster rushes in and that's when I could overpower the monkey. So it was these three characters. And I, and, and I, I wrote about it because it was like, this is um, not good. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not good that I need the panic monster to do stuff. Um, and I didn't necessarily have solutions. I was just sort of like, here's what happens. Here's what goes on in my brain. And so that, that's, uh, that's when I started writing about it and trying to explore this weird behavior. Yeah. As you're describing the first two characters, you even described the first one as an adult. It, that was, I think, the word you were using. And then the second character is almost like a monkey. Um, and where my mind was going as you were describing it was I've got two small kids, first grade, kindergarten. Uh, you're talking about fourth grade version of Tim. I was thinking about, yeah, my kids often want instant gratification. They want that seemingly answer right away, uh, that clean answer. Um, have you thought at all about how we go from being children to adults, but we still have this childlike sense of our ourselves inside of us that never really goes away and that what we experience as as children does stay with us we just might have a job or might have deadlines or might have panic that causes us to act have you thought about sort of an adult mind and a child mind and how as we grow we are seen as adults but we still have a a, a child mind yeah I, I think a lot about that i mean i think that it's not that we go from we are all children and then suddenly we're all grownups, right? We, we get older, our bodies get older, but I, I think it's that we, it's, it's, uh, it's um, un, uneven distribution of growth. So we'll grow up a lot in one area, you know, maybe as a kid, we were, you know, maybe in middle school, we were cruel, you know, or we, we weren't, you know, whatever. And, and, and we, we grow out of that and we stop being cruel and become much kinder. Maybe that's an example. Or maybe we were much more uh, simplistic in our thinking. We thought, you know, one political side is, pure good the other political side is pure bad and we grow out of that maybe and we start to grow up and say oh it's it's, it's more nuanced it's more complicated um you know um maybe our integrity you know gets stronger as we grow so there's, there's a lot of different ways we can grow uh and i think for each i don't think anyone grows up perfectly in every way and i think if you if, i think if, you know uh going so far as to say this child in me needs to be basically killed and i need to be a totally different person. I don't really think that's even advisable. I think that the inner child in us is one of the best parts of, 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 of grownups. Uh, it's what a lot of times allows us to be creative and to uh, have fun and, um, and, and to be open-minded though. That's all kind of inner child stuff often. And so um, the goal I think is to grow up in all the right ways and stay young in all the wrong ways. Now, most of us, again, we don't, we don't do that exactly right procrastination for me is an example of somewhere where I have not grown up in, in a regret, in an, a regrettable way. Uh, it's a way where I wish I could grow up in this particular way, but I, I do think that it is similar to a battle between kind of an inner child in my head and a grown up. And in thinking about how, you know, it's, it's, again, you sound a little like a crazy person when you talk about this, cause you're like, there's different voices in my head, but the truth is I think there are right. And, um, you know, personalities are complex and multifaceted. And I think that thinking of it as multiple characters can be very helpful and very empowering. Um, and you can even go farther with this. And I, I, I sometimes think that, um, you know, I should think of it as a little parent-child relationship going on in my head that I'm, you know, I'm both characters. Uh, or, or maybe I'm at this point, you know, the conscious I is more the grown-up, but I'm dealing with this child. And one of the ways I like to think about it is, um, is... I think uh, an amateur procrastinator mistake is they hate the child. They think that this is just bad and they're screaming at themselves in their head and they're, they're, they're self-loathing and, um, and they don't ever, they, they think of the child as something that should go away rather than something that is there permanently and that needs to need, has its own needs. So I think, one healthy way to be is to, to, to think of it as like this child's in there and wants to relax and wants to have fun. It doesn't want to work, but I need it to work. Sometimes I, I can't have this child ruining everything. So let's make compromises. Let's say on, um, 
you know, on a, on a work day, I'm going to sit down and, you know, it's 9am and say, I'm going to, I'm going to write, I'm going to work on writing till three. And at three, I'm going to stop and I'm going to do something fun. Now, I think if you can pull that off and it's three now and you say you're on a roll and this perfectionist in you says, no, 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 keep going. And you just don't have any, you don't enjoy yourself afterwards. I think the next day that kid is going to rebel because you're, um, you're breaking your promise to the kid. So I think it's important to say something like, you know, I want to stop at three and then actually stop at three. And then what happens is, you know, this kid, this instant gratification monkey is, is a primitive part of our brain that feeds on things like dopamine. Right. So if it's three and the kid gets a reward, you go do something so gratifying. It's so fun. And you have a great time and you're, you, you, you feel really good about that. The next day you might wake up and you know, that's waiting in the wings and the kid knows this fun thing is waiting in the wings. And I think that might be a more tame kid that day, a kid that's more likely to say, okay, I can get on with this program. Cause we're going to, you're going to have fun later. Yeah. We're going to have fun later. I promise. Um, and so I think it's like um, carving out high quality, guilt-free leisure time is very important. It, it, it recharges your willpower for the next day. It, it creates this healthy balance in your head. Um, and I think when procrastinators often, they're, they're not, not only are they not working, they're not having any real fun. They're having guilty fun or they're having, you know, anxiety riddled leisure time. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's kind of a yin yang. You have to pay attention to both sides of that. It's interesting because as I'm hearing you, my initial brain wants to go to, all right, as a parent, how can this be leveraged for my kids? I think one of the mistakes that I make as a parent is sometimes focusing on them rather than focusing on myself. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about, no, 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 bring it back to me. Like, what are the things that I need and how can I be my best so that I can then be in service to them uh, as well? And I think about content creation for me. I have a podcast. We, we put one of these out every week. I don't make any money off my podcast. I have a newsletter. I put it out once a week. I don't make any money off my newsletter. So I have these forcing functions and I take breaks and I'll take off for the holidays. And like this podcast will take off December and into early January. So it's not so strict, but I know throughout my content creation journey, there's a yin and a yang there too, where it's like, all right, I want the forcing function of weekly because it forces me to have a conversation with you. Um, and I like to learn from people like you. And there are other times where I'm like, can I just not have to find another podcast guest or not have to write a newsletter for you as you're creating content and writing, how much do you sort of pull on the forcing function of knowing that you need to do it compared to um, taking those breaks and, and stepping into those places of fun or, or having rest or whatever it might be when, when sometimes you don't feel like producing any content. Yeah. I mean, the, the way that works well is if you, you know, if I finish something big and I post something, I can have some very, you know, I call it, I actually call the good kind of leisure and fun which is the kind when you are, again, guilt-free. You feel like you've earned it deep down. You feel like this is the right thing to be doing. I should be. Both the grown-up and the kid in your head agree. Leisure makes sense right now. I call that the happy playground, right? And so you're, you know, when I finish something big, that's often when I'll just have a great day in the happy playground. I feel like there's no, I'm not supposed to do anything right now. I actually, like, there's, I, I've done all the right things. I feel my self-esteem is high. I feel like, you know, very... Um, just, you know, very, very positive. And then you can really enjoy yourself. And that's the kind of time I think happy playground time is great for your creativity. I think when you come back to the drawing board later, I think you're often, you know, recharged and it's great. It builds up. It's, it's just healthy for you. Um, I spend a lot more time in a place I call the dark playground, which is uh, the place you are when you're doing leisure activities at a time when it doesn't make any sense. When you're, you know, whether it's you're on email and you should be doing something else or you're, um, you're, you know, on Twitter and you should be doing your emails, whatever it is, you're, you're, you, there's some part that the grown up in your head and the kid and the kid now don't agree. The grown up is saying we should be doing X, but you're doing Y that's the dark playground. And the dark playground I think is the opposite where instead of recharging you and kind of, you know, 
you know, you know, it's, it, you feel it actually, I think, sucks energy out of you. I think it's kind of soul crushing to spend time in the dark playground. You feel bad about yourself. You're, you feel like you're wasting time. You're, you're just full of stress. I don't think it's healthy. I think it's, I think when you're in the dark playground, you're aging quicker. I think it's not, you know, good for your, good for you. Um, and, um, and often the time flies in the dark playground in kind of an extra cruel, cruel fact here. I think like when, you know, when I should be working and I get up and I say, I want to start working 10 a.m. today. You know, I want to just be writing at 10 and suddenly it's two and I haven't started yet. You know, that's, that's the, that's the dark playground, just stealing four hours of my life. I didn't Tim, enjoy it. I wasn't productive. Yeah. Tim, what do you do? Cause I, I talked to clients about this. So when you're then not doing what you want to do and maybe a voice comes in, that's shame, embarrassment, guilt, like the, these qualities that sort of, um, are, are harsh or critical. What, how, what do you do with, with those voices when they start to come in, when, when you aren't acting the way that you want to act or when you want to be acting that way, how do you manage yourself uh, and not go into like a downward spiral of, of criticism? Yeah. I mean, the, w one thing that I can do uh, that can help me feel better in that moment is to say, well, tomorrow is going to be different, you know, and suddenly I can have this positive, this, this kind of wave of hope, uh, when I think it's okay, because future Tim is going to crush it tomorrow, make up for all of this. So it's okay. Now, you know, that can become a string of future Tim failing. And now the, that present Tim putting it onto the next future Tim, and, you know, that can become a delusional hope spiral. Um, I think that what, uh, what I've done when I've succeeded more is often, I will do something in that moment to kind of force future Tim's hand. Um, I'll do something like I will set up. Um, I've um, I work with uh, a woman named Alicia who has been working with me for seven years, and I'll say something like, "Hey, let's let's schedule a nine a.m. to noon work session tomorrow. I'm going to share my screen, so you're going to see what I'm doing, and I'm going to I'm going to write during those hours. Now that is I'm going to actually show up to that. I'm not going to uh, you know, stand her up on that work meeting. So I'm going to show up and I'm going to share my screen because I said, I said I would. So now there's another person here. I have to do what I said. And now I'm not going to procrastinate when she can see my screen. So little things like this, that's a way of kind of forcing using kind of an external, um, kind of, uh, cudgel on yourself to, to, to on your future self to say, this will happen now. Uh, I'm not leaving it up to myself. I'm, I'm bringing something else, an assistant, of some kind into this. So I'll, I think for, for someone who has a real problem, um, you know, it's, it's often full of delusion. It's often that, you know, you always think that tomorrow will be different and without any good evidence for that, why would tomorrow be different? You know, unless you do something different and maybe the thing you have to do different until maybe you can build that natural habit where you don't need these crutches anymore is something like I just described. Or another thing I've done is I'll say to friends, I'll say, hey, I'm going to, send you $500 in a week on Venmo if I don't get to this point by then. Okay, I just created a deadline, a panic monster. That's a real panic monster. Now, I don't lose $500. That's that's awful. So um, how often are you, you how often are you how often are you finding yourself? How often are do you actually get to the point where you where you have to deliver on that? Uh, I, I I've um I would say that the money thing has had a 80% success rate. Um, I've, I've definitely lost over a thousand dollars in this kind of thing over the last few years, but I would, it's a great use of that, that few thousand dollars. I mean, it is, it is, um, I I've, I've, it's helped me move so much farther on, on hard projects than I would have otherwise. So I, I think that uh, procrastinators get in biggest trouble when they don't take their problem seriously. When they think, it's just me being lazy. I'll, I'm going to be better tomorrow. It's like, no, like you, it's like, you know, right now you have a big problem, a serious problem, and it's going to affect your whole life. And when you think of it that way, you'll take real action. And then when you take real action that, you know, treating it like a serious problem, then you'll do stuff like I'm talking about and you'll actually see new results. It's when you get cocky and you think, I don't need to do that. I don't need to pay anyone money. I'm gonna, I can handle this. I'm a grown up. That's when you're going to get yourself into trouble a lot. Are there other areas of your life where this shows up, whether it's relationships, uh, anything in, in your personal world, working out, exercising? D do you find that procrastinating tends to show up more professionally or does it show up in, in other areas of your life as well? 
Yeah, no, it definitely shows up in some in some other areas. Like, yeah, like exercising, working out. Again, I would be like, I need a trainer or uh, because then I will have to do it, right? That's a good way to force yourself to do something or I'm going to like sign up for 10 yoga classes ahead of time and pay for them all. So now I'm going to go to those because I paid for them, you know? Um, so I think, um, yeah, it can, it can, um, you know, it's, again, it's spotty and there's other areas where I, you know, I, I, uh, I think I don't procrastinate on certain things. Uh, and I, and I'm, you know, I'll, I'll actually, a lot of times things where I can plan ahead where I can plan something for future Tim, like I'll see friends cause I'll, you know, Tuesday, Tim will plan a Friday thing with a friend. So now I'm not going to like, you know, not do it because I've planned it or, you know, if I want to, I won't procrastinate on traveling to new countries because I've planned that ahead of time, you know, something I really want to do. Right. It's easy to, even though that's fun when you're there, it's easy to just say, Oh, it's, it's a lot, it's money, it's planning, it's time. I'll do that next year, you know? And so, but I've been good about it actually, because I can plan that and lock it in on one ambitious feeling day. Um, now the flights are booked, like that's going to happen. So um, it hits in more areas than others. For me, you know, yeah, the, definitely exercising is a, is a tough one for me. Um, and, um, and then, and then for me, the biggest one is just, uh, you know, getting out the work I really want to be getting out on the schedule. I want to be getting it out. Were you strong academically as a kid? I was very strong academically in high school because a, I had, very immediate deadlines. Like they don't, they treat you like children in high school, which was exactly what I needed. You, you don't just hand in your big research paper. You have to hand in your note cards and you have to hand in your first draft and you have to, you know, um, and so I would still do those many things at the last second, but I, I was forced to kind of pace myself. I couldn't get too far behind because they don't let you get that far behind. Right. Um, and secondly, I had a big North star, which was, I really wanted to get into a top college. Right. That was at the time for 16 year old Tim, 15 year old Tim, that was like, Cause you know, you're, it's the world you grew up in. That's this big thing. It matters so much. Right. And now in retrospect, like how much did it matter? Probably not that much for me, but at the time it felt like the end of the world. So a, I had this big macro motivation and then I had a lot of micro help. So I got great grades, uh, exactly when I needed to colleges don't look at freshman year grades. So my freshman year grades sucked. I crushed sophomore junior year in the first half of senior year, which was exactly what you needed. And then my second semester senior grade sucked because I didn't need them anymore. So again, I didn't, I wasn't, a, I didn't have good work ethic. I, I had a, the panic monster about a certain thing that, that mattered, but, and then, so I, I get into Harvard, right? I, I like it, it, it the, those things were there. And that turns into me like crushing that game. I get to school. Suddenly they, A, they treat you like grownups in college. They say your midterm is here, your finals there, and the big papers due on this date. There's no handholding. Um, and the North star, I was like, do I even need my college grades? You know, necessarily I, I like, there was a, there was a big world in which, you know, I, I wouldn't even need them if I wanted to go into entrepreneurship or I wanted to go into the arts. I probably wouldn't, it didn't even matter my college GPA. At least it wasn't as much of like an obvious, this is the end all this GPA is the most important thing without those two things. My college grades, they weren't like, again, I had to graduate. They weren't like awful, but they were quite mediocre. Um, I certainly not up to my potential. And also, it wasn't just about, I didn't learn as much as I could in college. It was like kind of a huge loss, right? It's an amazing time to really dig in and learn. And I, I feel like I could have learned a lot more if I wasn't cramming and, you know, putting off reading. And, and then, of course, you know, I, I, my, the most extreme example for me was my senior thesis, which is a year-long paper that I wrote in the last three days. That's like how extreme I had gotten. It was a caricature of myself at that point. Um, and I wrote like, a, I just scribbled out an awful thesis and handed it. And so... At the time, I thought, you know, that's um, okay, that's fine, because I don't need these grades anyway, and it's done. And now I don't have to ever write a paper again. I don't have to ever take a test again. But it turns out you get to the real world. And again, if you, it, it, there are some jobs that are like high school and some jobs that are like college. The jobs that are like high school are ones where, you know, you're working with a team. Um, you are uh, you're accountable. You have to show up at the meeting. Um, and then when you leave work, you're done with your work. It's not really homework to do. You have to do the work in the office when you have to do it. There's deadlines that you have to, that, you know, you have to, you're doing a big presentation for a group on Tuesday. You, you have to be ready to panic monster. That I think would have been fine. I would have had the crutches I need. I instead went on a career. There was a lot more like college for me, which was, I was, you know, doing business and art stuff, but exactly the, the kinds of stuff that there's no one making you do those things. There's no teacher. There's no deadline. 
uh, until, you know, until you've gotten some momentum and actually created something and then maybe there starts to be, you know, pressure at the beginning, there's nothing there's, there's, you, you have to make it happen. And so that was a very bad match. Um, I had to, you know, uh, I didn't, ha- I hadn't built up these muscles, these self productive muscles. I had built up, you know, the ability to respond to external pressure. So yeah, it was, it was tough. You said fourth grade version of you, if you had gone back there and said becoming a writer, that would be like a nightmare. It, it wouldn't, it wouldn't jive well with your processes and systems. Who was the first person that looked at you and said, Hey, Tim, you can write like you're, you're pretty good at writing and uh, sort of identified that that could be a part of uh, your work, your identity or, or how you saw yourself. Honestly, uh, it didn't happen because I never was writing the kind of writing I do now, I was doing papers and I was doing pretty bad papers usually, um, you know, bare minimum, boring writing, you know, you know, and, and also, you know, in high school and college, you're actually not, you know, it's not, a, it's not good writing isn't really the game. Um, you're supposed to have a clear thesis, topic sentences, and, you know, you, you know, you can be within that little structure. You can then, you know, okay, good word choice or, you know, this nice flow, but the kind of writing that, I do now is colloquial writing. It's, it's, I, I still don't even consider that like, you know, I, I think that, um, I think that mostly what I'm doing is like I'm communicating. I, I, I'm thinking of ideas and trying to package them and communicate them much more than that, that I'm like, you know, writing these beautiful sentences. So I, I don't think, uh, I, I don't think I ever thought, including now, of like, you know, wow, this like, I have this talent for writing. It was much more like, um, I thought I hated writing because I was doing mostly papers. And then I started, blogging in 2005 as a complete procrastination side activity writing with with no pressure no audience at the beginning um just just uh just just having fun and that's when i realized that me having fun in the form of writing oh that's actually catching on like people are liking that and so um that's when I started to realize is when i first started getting you know blog comments and blog audience and people i knew in my life reading it and saying um they liked it. So it was, it wasn't really until then. How do you uh, manage looking at, at blog comments? Uh, like, how do you, how do you think about them? Uh, I've been on your site. I mean, you have tons of comments on there. Uh, some positive, some negative, some in between. Yeah. I mean, like what's your filter and how do you think about uh, comments? Well, most, for most blog posts, it's, it's easy. You know, if I write about procrastination, that's going to be mostly positive because it's this, you know, relatable topic. I'm not presenting myself as an expert, so I'm not going to ruffle the feathers of rival experts or anything. I'm saying I'm a guy. Here's what I go through, right? You're not going to get too much negative negativity on that. You might get some people saying, you know, I disagree or I think you're mischaracterizing that. And that that never bothers me. I think that's always interesting. I read it, um, especially if I hear the same kind of thing from a bunch of people. Uh, I'll take it. I'll, I'll, I'll listen. I'll take it to heart. Um, obviously, you'd rather hear. You know, it feels good to see, you know, have effusive comments and having critical comments or people saying, oh, this wasn't one of your best. Like, it doesn't feel great. But it's like, you know, if you write a lot of blog posts, you learn to let that roll off your back. And um, and uh, and again, ideally, you actually listen and you can take take some of it to heart. Um, Then there's posts that are, you know, about there's a lot of there's certain topics that get people's like what I would call like their primitive mind going, you know, get, get people, their ego going, get their, um, you know, their tribal senses going. Um, and it's when you touch on a, a topic that's sacred to people. So, you know, if I, you know, a, a benign one would be, you know, I write, if I write about nutrition, you're going to get a lot of very strong views. People have religious views about their nutrition. Or if I write, when I write about, you know, um, uh, electric cars and I talk about uh, climate change or whatever, you're going to get, you know, but, but most extreme for me, um, you know, writing about religion actually has didn't ruffle feathers at all because most of my readers just aren't religious. Um, that's just, just the kind of crowd that I attract is not usually, so I can write about, you know, the problems with religion and I'll just get mostly people saying you're right. Um, but this all changed when I started writing about politics, you know, at, at this time right now, it's just part of why I started writing about it. Cause I was like, man, this is a religious topic. This is crazy. So I started writing about it and uh, not surprisingly, uh, the comments were spicy. Um, now, if you look carefully, so, so one, I've also started to, you want to, you need to take a rational, you know, you need to really overpower your kind of emotions with rationality when you're looking at comments. So the emotions might see a bunch of negative comments or a bunch of nasty comments and get really upset. 
the rational side would, would have to look at things like, okay, um, how many people read this blog post? How many comments are there? So first of all, you're like, wow. Um, and by the way, a lot of the comments are by the same people. So like maybe there's 300 commenters and 300,000 people read the post. So we're talking out of a, so you picture a thousand people come through and they read, read, read. And then one of them is like comment. Now, that's not a representative, first of all. Um, now, secondly, you have to look at, uh, um, I look carefully at the both the positive and the negative. Um, and what I'm looking for is I think of two axes. Uh, one axis is positive to negative comment. The other axis is um, how like, on one side, it's someone who likes what I do. They read a lot of my blog posts. They read this post carefully, and now they're commenting. And on the other side of that extreme, it's someone who doesn't know who I am. They saw this article on Twitter. They went to it. The headline made them angry. They kind of skimmed through it, if, if read it at all, and wrote an angry rant, something you know, mean or nasty or their own, just their own kind of off-topic rant. And the, again, the emotional side might be upset about any negative comment, but the rational side of me says, uh, first of all, A, this is not a representative sampling. B, um, the people who are in that second kind of category of negative comment, they're irrelevant. That person probably wrote 12 angry comments today on 12 different blogs, and they're on their own little internet tear. And they, they're triggered by this thing, and they're having a religious kind of you know, reaction to what, what I said. And especially if they're being nasty, I'm like, those aren't my writers. This isn't someone who cares about me or my writing at all, right, or my my ideas. This is... So, so that's just an angry internet person. And it's like, I, I, I've learned to not really get upset about angry internet people. The only time it upsets me is if they're dominating the comment section. And I feel like they're actually ruining the conversation. Then that's annoying for a different reason. On the other hand, um, when I say there's, there's some posts that have that most of the negativity is that, in which case I say that's, I don't, I, I don't, nothing to reflect on here. Most of the people who actually care about this liked it. There's other posts where I do see a lot of negative comments from people who are, clearly are invested in me, why, who did read it. And, that, and then it's like, you know, uh, those matter. I read those. I think about those. Um, not, I don't necessarily agree, right? You, you, you have to do your own thing. You're going to always have some people that disagree. So it's not that I necessarily want to like cater to those people, but I listen. And sometimes they point out flaws in genuine flaws in what I wrote or holes in my argument, or they point out bias. So they call me on hypocrisy. And I'm, I do all those things, right? Like any flawed thinker. So um, I think it's the, the sweet spot is, you know, if you let if you let all the negative comments get to you, you're not you're going to be too scared to write anything. Right. It's going to make you want to go into your hole. If you ignore all the negative comments and say the oh, if you just say oh, all negative comments are just haters. Oh, haters are going to hate. Right. Now you're not going to grow. You're not going to learn anything. You're being arrogant. You're assuming you have nothing to learn and you're protecting yourself from the negative feelings at the cost of growth. So I think the sweet spot is when you can sort correctly is, you know, uh, between which ones matter and which ones don't, and then listen to the ones that matter and read them. And yeah, it doesn't feel good. Uh, but it, but when, you know, when in a year you're a better writer because of it, that does feel good. So it's, so anyway, that, that's, this is, that, that's kind of how, and this thing goes for Twitter comments, you know, I, I, uh, so, yeah. Is there a favorite part of the writing process for you? I, I just thought of like research, write, edit, then even this last part where you're getting feedback and opportunities to learn and grow. Like, is there a part of it that, that you love doing? Um, I, I honestly, most of the process I don't like. Um, I really love publishing something. It's like, it's to me, it's like going to the gym. It's like, well, which part of the gym workout did you like? And it's like, probably not much of it did you actually enjoy. But to me, it's like all worth it to finish something I think is good and to put it out there and have it connect with people is like worth it. It's like the, so, um, but you know, there's some parts that are worse than others. And uh, like when I'm, you know, if I, if I pick a new topic and I first start, you know, researching it and I'm, and I'm like, oh, wow. I'm learning like I'm, I'm having my mind blown by the research. That's very exciting because A, I'm learning something. My curiosity is indulged. But B, I'm like, oh, this is going to blow everyone else's mind now. Like if I, I just assume that my readers are a lot like me because that's who would be attracted to uh, the way I think. So when I'm reading something and I'm like, oh, this is insane. I had no idea how fascinating this topic was. I'm so excited in that moment because I'm about to 
uh, give so many other people this exact experience. And that's so fun. I'm like, oh, you know, it gets excited. I'm like, I'm going to, it's like when you have a gift for someone that you know they're going to love. It's such an exciting feeling, right? It's so fun watching them open the gift. That's how I feel in that moment is like, um, I just found a great gift. I know they're going to like it. Now, it's, that moment you're like, I want to give it to them now, right? So it's still like delayed. Um, it's, it's the much more gratifying moments when you actually give them the gift, when you actually publish and you see the positive feedback. Um, and then the outlining process is usually pretty miserable. That's just like you have to really take off your... Um, you know, your curiosity hat and just like be organized. And that's when, you know, perfectionism can get out of control and you can try to fit every part of the topic in and you have to resist that and you have to figure out what, so that part is just kind of hard. Uh, and, um, and usually you have to do some writing and then the outline starts to clear itself up. You can't outline perfectly and then write. Usually you have to kind of go back and forth. Uh, writing, I almost always hate, except if I get into like a really good flow. Sometimes I'm just, uh, you know, it's coming out and I'm like flying through it. I mean, that, those are those exhilarating moments, but that's, you know, few and far between. It's hard to get into those moments. Drawing, I also kind of hate, um, I'm, I'm not very good at it. So I do a lot of trial and error, a lot of undo, undo, undo. And my hand's getting tired. It's kind of grueling again. But then when it's done, I'm like so happy I did it. And um, I'm proud of it. And then, um, and then shipping, it's great. So that's kind of how it is for me, which I would say probably a lot of creative people feel this way. Yeah. Let's stay on creativity. Uh, I'm fascinated by you saying I'm not good at drawing. Even when I asked you about who was the first person that acknowledged you're a good writer, you're like, well, I'm not even sure I'm a good writer, but here you are you know, earning a living in large part due to your ability to write and draw. Um, how do you make sense of that and, and make sense of it in your head as far as, you know, belief in your ability to do it or to get it out, uh, even if it sounds like there's some questioning as to whether or not you are creative and some uncertainty there. Like, how do you, how do you deal with that in your mind? Yeah, no, it's, I definitely think I'm creative. I don't, I don't think that like, I'm like, why does anyone like this? Like, I think I create very good things when they're done. Um, it's just that it's hard to do that for anyone. I mean, I, I think probably most people who have created good songs, good books, good, whatever, they would tell you that, the, that it's, it's hard, right? Like, you know, I'm sure some people are just such utter naturals that they can, it's easy, but I, I don't think there's that many people that, you know, you have to work hard. So um, I, I would say that it's not that I, I doubt my abilities. And I think that like, it's more that it's, it's it, as far as the writing part goes, it's like, I don't think that the things I produce really require like beautiful writing. They require good communication and they require authenticity, me to just be myself on the page. And then to, teach like as if I'm teaching someone, you know, explain it in a way that's really clear. Right. And that I do think I'm very good at. Um, and so, uh, and then as far as drawing, it's like, uh, I think that I have a good vision in my head that I'm good at thinking like, Oh, here's a good visual. I'm good at coming up with a good visual and I'm good at ultimately making that visual. But the, that the gap in between is huge because I don't actually have a very natural writing ability. So I can like a drawing ability. So I can see, like, oh, I want to do a, uh, a a Trojan horse here. It's the perfect way to capture this idea. And I can kind of picture what it looks like. And then I start actually drawing on the page and it looks like a five-year-old drew the horse. And I have to just just mess around, mess around, look at Google images, how do horses look? And then and eventually, I, you know, I, I, maybe two or three hours later, I'll get to, I'm like, okay, now it's good. So um, I think it's just about, you know, if you want to create a finished um, a finished package, I'm sure for most people, there's some parts of that package that your natural talents fit perfectly with, right? And it's gonna, those parts are going to come more easily. And there's other parts of that package that you're either going to need a collaborator for, or you're going to really have to fight, you know, work on hard. You know, I would say that's probably true for anyone um, that, you know, s s some things are going to be natural, some things are not. And then the final package, you're going to have to reconcile with the things that you're not so great at to make sure that those don't mess it up. It's interesting because when I think of creativity, I think of my childhood and art class would be the place where people that were creative. I remember my friend Mark, he was able to draw these amazing sketches and I would think of him as a creative and an artist and I would never see myself as creative because that was the label and that was how I thought of creativity and art. And I think about labeling and and like the idea of what is someone smart because of their ability to do things academically or um, are they athletic because maybe they're good at a certain sport. And we tend to, at least for me, like there are definitely labels that I put on myself 
in high school or middle school that stayed with me. And those stories existed because now people be like, Brian, you're really creative. You wrote a book, you have a podcast, you, you create things all the time, but I still have like a story in my head. I was like, no, but my handwriting's awful. I can't draw. Like I'm not an artist in any way. Um, I'm, I'm curious for you, as you think about labels and, and what you identify with, um, how do you, how do you think about that from a creativity standpoint? Yeah, I think I think that's a really excellent point. I think all your examples, creativity, intelligence, athleticism, these are all examples where early on there are like, I, I, by the way, I'm with you. I was in the art class. I could, I, I was, oh, I'm still amazed by anyone who can draw a face, draw a horse, draw a dog, whatever. I, I, I do not have that, that talent. It is just missing from my brain. I have no idea how they do it. I could train, I could take a course and then get good, but that's not, that's different, right? Um. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I think that all three of those things are much kind of vaguer, broader, like worlds of ability than we are, when we learn. So like intelligence, right. I have a friend who is one of the sharpest people I know, right? Like he, if you wanted to play a strategy game against him, he's going to beat you. And he is now like an extremely successful, uh, entrepreneur. This guy was terrible at school, right? His handwriting looked like a five-year-old. He was, you know, he had all kinds of weird you know, learning disabilities. He um, had no self-confidence in his intelligence during his childhood because exactly what you said. Um, but he's, he's, again, he's sharp as a tack. Um, and if you look at the people he's friends with, you know, he's friends with all these really smart people who wouldn't want to be friends with him if he, if he, was, if he wasn't smart. So um, it's, it's just, uh, and it's that he wasn't, he like his particular intelligence didn't click well with, you know, that particular skill set. And same with like athleticism, you know, like someone might be great at like, you know, climbing or at like, you know, boxing, but they're, but they're, you know, they're, they're not coordinated. So they're bad at tennis. So they think they're, 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 you know, and it's like, um, there are, uh, so I think, yeah, I think we often limit ourselves by these, I, we, we have an early identity, uh, based on these things. And, and, and this is all talking about natural ability. There's also the fact that so many of the people that are great at stuff in the world that we admire, they actually got there through a ton of practice and work. So it's a, you limit yourself by looking at the, someone drawing well, and you think, okay, well, they're creative and I'm not. So a, that's one of hundred ways creativity can manifest itself. And B it's like, you also don't know how many people that are great artists that actually started off quite bad and they gained some skills that helped them that maybe they had beautiful art in their head and then what they needed was they just needed some skills to get it from there there or you know music there's a lot of people that might have amazing composition abilities they could write a great song but they don't know how to play the guitar and so they might go into music class and they're 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 fumbling and maybe they're not even maybe they never you know i don't think the beatles are great guitar players right with they're, they're okay guitar players what they're amazing at is uh writing songs right and lyrics and music and so um I think that, uh, you know, sometimes there's a skill gap that we have to, you know, get over. And then suddenly all of this creativity opens up in us that we didn't, you know, that was being blocked. So, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a great way to think that uh, to, um, to, to keep your mind open about these things and not sell yourself short and keep messing around with different mediums and different things until you start to find areas that you're strong in. Because everyone is strong in some areas, whether it's in, you know, creativity or not. Um, and, uh, and, and when you are somewhat strong in something, then practice the shit out of it and get good at it, you know? And I think we're similar in age. And so I know a lot of people that listen to this, they'll be thinking about their kids as it relates to this conversation. And I just encourage people to look inward first, because, uh, I think sometimes we all shield ourselves from exploring ourselves by focusing externally on others. And so that's something I'm, I'm thinking about. The last thing I'm curious about, I mean, I'm curious about a lot more, but to, to sort of wrap up and, and close is on your Twitter bio, it says writer and infant. Uh, so there's just two words there in your bio. I'm curious, like why those two words? <laughs> I, I honestly, it's not much thought behind that. I, I did it like when I, you know, one day I did that. Uh, someone was like, you should have a bio. I had no bio for a while. And so I did that in a silly mood one day and just haven't changed it. I don't know. Why the word um, infant? I mean, idea, I, Raider makes uh, sense, I, I mean, a different one. just because, just because I, uh, I think that uh, my, 
someone who reads my blog would know that I'm kind of like often silly and, uh, and I have like, and I'm, I'm often writing about my own immature problems. And then I draw like a kind of like a two year, like a second grader. And it's just kind of like, uh, it just seems to kind of fit. It, it just seemed right. It seemed like it captured those two words kind of captured my, my general vibe. Yeah. I often, I've worked with a lot of athletes over the years and I would often say to them, think like a pro, but play like a kid. And especially in sports, yeah. like we, we play sports, you play an instrument, uh, if you're an actor, you're in a play. Uh, I think sometimes adults, we we forget to to play. And so when I saw that, I thought of like, all right, writer is sort of profession, but underneath that is this ability to still play like a kid, um, draw, imagine, create, innovate. So I, that, that was what was coming up for me. But Totally. The best things I've written, my, the best things I've written have been when I was in a mood where I felt like I was playing as I wrote it and, and came up with it. And uh, it's the that's the best, most authentic, most uh, you know, addictive to read things I've done. I think all all uh, think that you know I, I'm always trying to remember to tap into that. And that if I'm having fun, it's going to produce something good. So I know wait, but why is where people can get all your stuff. You have an awesome newsletter. I highly recommend people check that out and subscribe to that. Um, if people want to follow what you're up to, I know you got a book coming out in February. Uh, is Wait But Why the best place to go? Is there anywhere else you want yeah. to get people to? Yeah, I know. I would say that, that, that yeah, waitbutwhy.com is uh, where my, my my writing goes. Um, but there's two good ways to follow me. One is um, uh, subscribe to the email list, which you can do right on the site, or follow me on Twitter, where I do a lot of my like daily ideas to come out on Twitter. That's just where I hang out on social media. So and that's just at Wait But Why. I'm on Twitter as well at Brian Levinson, and you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Tim, thanks for coming on. Love learning with you and looking forward to the book. What can you give us a teaser for the book? What's the book going to be about? It's about why our society is such a shit show right now and what we should do about that. I can't wait to read that. You know, there was uh Jonathan Haidt had this uh, article in the Atlantic uh, about why the last 10 years have sucked. Uh, Great article. Yeah. 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 And I was talking to my dad about it. Exploring uh, a lot of a lot of those ideas. Yeah, I was talking to my dad about it last night, just social media and um why it was created and and how it exists. I think those are are two very different things. So I'm looking forward to reading the book, uh learning from you that way as well. And and thanks for coming on the podcast. And we didn't even talk about my, my brother Scott or your friend Jake. So um maybe down the road, 300 episodes from now, I'll have you back on in a long time and we can just talk about Jake and Scott the entire time. Done the whole time. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Tim. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. If I if I pick a new topic and I first start, you know, researching it, and I'm and I'm like, oh wow, I'm learning. Like I'm I'm having my mind blown by the research. That's very exciting because a I'm learning something. My curiosity is indulged. But B, I'm like, oh, this is going to blow everyone else's mind now. Like, if, I, I just assume that my readers are a lot like me because that's who would be attracted to uh, the way I think. So when I'm reading something and I'm like, oh, this is insane. I had no idea how fascinating this topic was. I'm so excited in that moment because I'm about to uh, give so many other people this exact experience. And that's so fun. Like, oh, you know, it gets excited. I'm like, I'm going to it's like when you have a gift for someone that you know they're going to love. It's such an exciting feeling, right? It's so fun watching them open the gift. That's how I feel in that moment is like, um, I just found a great gift.